to the Right on Point podcast with Wayne Rohde. The Right on Point podcast is a candid discussion of your legal rights, civil liberty ramifications, legalities of possible mandates of COVID vaccines, and actions by our federal government and state governments. Plus exploring the untouchable topics within the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, the PrEP Act, and the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for being here with us today on the Right on Point podcast. We've got a full house today. It's going to be a fun show. Ian Miller's with us, author of Unmask, the global failure of the COVID mask mandates. Michael Beatrice, a returning guest, is going to be also with us, and he's the author of two books, COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial, and COVID-19, The Science versus Lockdowns. Also with us tonight's Tonight, excuse me, is my co-pilot, uh, editor and producer, Ben Smith from Backwoods Media. So the four of us are going to get into it. We're going to have a very informative and very lively discussion of masking policies, but also lockdown failures. And then whatever else we'll start chatting about, whether it's, you know, the All-Star Game, Major League Baseball, All-Star Game tonight. I don't know. We'll figure something. But first, before we get into this, I want to mention we have a large event up here in Minnesota, October 1st. Very large. It's about 2,000 people gathering for a single day. It's the fourth annual Global Health Freedom Summit in Alexandria, Minnesota. It's going to be headlined by Dell Big Tree, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, Dr. Larry Polveski, Dr. Scott Jensen, who's running for governor and Dr. Bob Zajac, plus a few others. Uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and his co-author, John Leake, uh, will be there. Um, they're going to have a book signing at the end of the event. The book is called The Courage to Face COVID-19. For tickets to the event, it's wellnessmyway.org, wellnessmyway.org. On checkout, type in ROP for Right on Point and get discounted tickets. You can follow along on the show on rightonpoint.online, or you can check out the um, videos of our program on Rumble and BitChute. Just like everybody else, YouTube decides to censor and delete my entire library. You know, what a bunch of rascals they are. But uh, Rumble and BitChute, it's Right On Point channel. You'll get them. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I dare you to. It's at Wayne Rohde. Email box is email at uh, rightonpoint.online. And my substack is thevaccinecourt.substack.com. We're going to have an excellent show today. I really, really am excited to have these two guys on. And uh, welcome to the show, Ian Miller and Michael Beatrice. How are you guys doing tonight? Thank you. Yeah. We're well. A nice, nice late night interview. Yes, it is. Um, Michael, I got one thing for you. You're a returning guest, so now it qualifies you. I have this deal when someone returns for the third time, they qualify, <coughs> excuse me, for a very fashionable Hawaiian print sports coat. <laughs> it's uh, something that I, I award to my guests who come back on the third time. Now, now Dr. James Meehan and Mary Holland are the only two others that have this. It's my choosing. I usually go out to eBay or I might go out to Goodwill and find one and I'll send it to you, but okay. it's a hoot. 
I take it from the old Saturday Night Live skit of the five, what is it, five timers host where they're all wearing blue velvet jackets. And uh, so I thought about that. I said, you know what? I'm going to have one. But for any guest who comes on for three, uh, the third time gets the jacket. So oh, next we'll time I have you on, I'll have a jacket for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to wear it. So anyway. Okay, Ian. Um, I've got your book, Unmasked, The Global Failure of COVID Mask Mandates. Interesting book. What brought you to write the book? And what did you hope to accomplish? Um, well, you know, I, I first of all, I have to give a lot of credit to, uh, to my co-guest here, Mr. Michael Beatrice, because he kind of helped uh, make the suggestion that, you know, a lot of these charts and the, and the graphs and information in there would be would be good uh, books would be a good format for it. Um, and I, I think that was a, it was a brilliant suggestion. I think it was it was a good idea um, in large part because it's one thing to show to send people to a Twitter account or to a Substack and say, you know, hey, look, there's 75 articles here or there's I've posted God knows thousands of charts on, on Twitter at this point. Um, go look at all those. But it's another thing to hand somebody a book and say, you know, here's a, a 250-page book with with some information in it that I think is interesting for you and that you should check out. Um, you know, putting that down in one format, I think, was good. And obviously, it's a, you can do a lot more in a long form uh, than you can on even an article. So uh, mm -hmm. the goal was to try and, and tell the story of, of what all the science was pre-COVID. You know, what did science say about masking pre-COVID? Uh, kind of set, and then once once the experts flip flop and said everybody should wear masks, say what were their expectations? What do they suggest was going to happen? And then present the data of here were the results, and did the results meet up with the expectations? Um, obviously, based on the title, I don't think they do, but I think that was kind of the idea was to tell the story and, and then present the data behind it. Well, I ordered this book and I got it in thinking that it was going to okay. You're going to dive into some of the science which you do. But what I found most remarkable, you broke down almost every state in the country. And then you also start comparing one country versus another. And I even find where you start looking at certain counties within certain states like Florida and stuff like that. And it's just, it's remarkable the amount of work that I guess both of you guys did to put this thing together. Um, it's, it's so easy to understand the failure of masking when you look at the book and read it. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm hey, sorry, go, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. I'd like to I'd like to call something out because Ian won't call this out, and so I want to take this opportunity. <laughs> but yeah, you know, going back uh, a little over two years ago, I discovered Ian on Twitter when I was wrapping up my first book. And Ian was uh, putting together charts, these graphical images that, uh, you know, it's one thing to take 140 characters on Twitter and write out, you know, we've had case increases of X after the mask mandates. When you see the visual, it really puts a kind of a, a different understanding, different context to it, something, you know, you kind of don't forget. And so what's, what I think is also interesting about the two of us, like a lot of others, Early on, uh, when you look at the censorship of the reporting on COVID-19, you had very few professionals in any of the governments, whether it was the state government or federal government, that was really calling attention to this. And so 
what you had here in this example was Ian first, you know, a a guy who had kind of a, a normal everyday American job in Los Angeles, and he's observing this data. This wasn't our background. It wasn't mine. And it wasn't Ian's prior to COVID. And he's making sort of common sense observations, puts that to a visual you know, a lot of people wouldn't know this. These charts that Ian's put together, they found their way all the way into the White House. Scott Atlas had, had actually shared those with President Trump in the day. And they found their way onto Fox News primetime. I don't think they found their way onto MSNBC or CNN, but you can correct me. <laughs> yeah, you're but, right on that one. <laughs> but it's a great example of how with, with in the absence of like experts and uh, authority figures stepping up, you had so many everyday Americans step up and supplement this. And I still maintain to this day that if as bad as social media is, if we didn't have Twitter, where you had people like Alex Berenson and Ian Miller and a host of other, but not a long list, it's maybe 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 even 10, if that, people uh, creating so much this wealth of common sense data that politicians were getting and news hosts were getting. But if we didn't create this information, I, I don't know how much longer the uh, lockdowns and some of these uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions would have lasted, but it would have been longer than it is. It's a real grassroots uprising that we experienced in the summer of 2020. Well, yeah, okay. and go ahead. I was just going to say, Michael's very kind, but it, I, I, you mentioned the county data. I think that it was really important for me to include some of that stuff because I think it, you know, it creates a very uh, you know, it's one thing to compare countries. Countries are huge. They have different borders. There's a lot of different demographics. But when you have counties in the same metropolitan area and they show the exact same curves, regardless of whatever whatever interventions they've they've chosen to implement or not implement, I think that shows you how much of this is really out of our control and and at a very local level. Um, so I thought those were really important. I'm glad that uh, they found them useful. Well, you know, um, I was just mentioning briefly right before we went on the air, and that was is that mass mandates, I'm also finding out, are very political. Now, here in Minnesota, um, I don't believe we're going to have a mandate this fall, and it has to do with the governor's race. And we were talking, and you mentioned, Ian, about New Jersey being the same. That really goes to, sh- to the point that m- the mandates really aren't there for protection or safety. It's all about what obedience, power control. Is that what it's what? What did you find when you started looking yeah. at this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of it is is political protection is the, is the way I would put it. Where, uh, especially early on, I think a lot of politicians realized that media would criticize them for not doing enough, but they could avoid a lot of that if they kind of went too far. That mm-hmm. um, it it's be wrong about COVID if you're doing it in this sort of maximalist sense where you are uh, imposing more restrictions on life, on normal life. Um, they're not really very concerned with, you know, they're much more concerned about media pressure coming from that side of things. Um, you know, now, as a lot of people have kind of realized how ineffective a lot of these policies have been and that the, the harm they're doing, um, it's kind of flipped where politicians in kind of, you know, maybe battleground states, states that are more mixed politically have realized that they don't have the political capital to get away with doing, you know, mask mandates or other policies forever. They're, they know, they're much more limited uh, what they can get away with. But it does tell you that, you know, if they didn't think they had the political capital to do these mandates, they wouldn't have. And and so it shows you a lot of this was not about safety and about uh, trying to control the spread of the virus. It was about protecting themselves from criticism. 
Okay. Um, question on observation here of the people. When I go out to a store, I like to look at people and observe and see what they're doing. And I'm seeing people walking out in public with a mask on. And then, then there was out on Twitter the other day, someone was at a beach, was out swimming, and they had a mask on. Last year, and Ben could speak to this too, but Minnesota is a big hockey state. I mean, we're, we have skates, you know, we're almost born with skates on. Um, but a lot of kids, you know, ages three and four start playing hockey and, 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 but they mandated hockey, uh, youth hockey sports to wear masks. And it was just, these kids were coming off the ice dying they were you know trying to get fresh air and they were mandated by their coaches and the school officials to wear masks at all time and i'm surprised we didn't see any more i wouldn't say heart attacks but fainting and stuff like that what is with this mask is there any science why do people wear a mask outside is it conformity because they or they're thinking it's going to protect them what is it uh, want me to go? Uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, go, please take it. <laughs> I think, you know, Wayne, if you look back at the conversation you and I had, uh, last month yeah, and uh, we discussed the media influence on all of us, I personally have a lot of forgiveness for a lot of people that wear masks in places that they really aren't required because the media has pounded this home so hard on cable news and on, uh, all the, the major media outlets and, and you know, I kind of outlined a lot of those, but all the things, you know, you take things like the Washington Post and the New York Times and, and some other outlets, the Atlantic, and then all these other smaller media outlets, they really cascade down from that. And if they're all pounding home the message of you've got to wear masks and it's coming from the federal government, your governor, all the way down and people aren't doing some kind of independent or critical thinking like Ian and I and millions of other people, then can you really blame them? I think it's understandable uh, why a lot of people are wearing masks outdoors or possibly at the beach. Or, um, you know, if someone's wearing a mask when they're performing athletics, that's because they're required to. I, I can't imagine anybody um, would do that voluntarily, uh, particularly, you know, a young kid, young athletes. But I think you kind of can't blame them. I don't think it's as much conformity as a genuine belief that these things help and they're game changers. And, you know, shame on, uh, really are, are medical experts. I mean, I think that if you look at science, you know, one of the chapters I wrote was science BC and mask science BC before COVID. And if you think back about Emily Oster, so she's an economist at Brown University. She's been fairly prolific throughout the lockdown period, the COVID period, about a lot of articles about masking and, and other tax choices, things like that. One of her comments is, you can find a study to say anything you wanted to say. What I try to do is I look at the majority of the studies and kind of what's that consensus. In the research that Ian and I did independently and kind of together, um, you, you really can't find a single study before COVID that put their foot down, their stamp down and said, wearing a cloth or surgical mask will stunt the spread of viral or aerosol particles. It doesn't exist. You really can't find a study that says that. And so, and the reason is because the pore size in these masks is several hundred times larger than an aerosol particle. It's, it's just math. 
And, uh, and so for someone like us, there's a lot of peace of mind that comes with that knowledge, right? I mean, Ian's looking at kind of the empirical data around overall cases and what do cases and hospitalizations look like in the wake of mask mandates. When you look at that type of data and then you understand the math behind it, it's, I don't want to say it's a little bit insane, but it doesn't make any real sense. And it's been, there've been very few people in politics to challenge that. Rand Paul did a good job Mm -hmm. early on. He was really the only high profile um, person in Congress to do that. And a number of governors kind of stepped up, but not even until late 2020. And it's really, it's a math, it's a math situation. And there's just, I almost feel sorry for the people that don't understand the math and don't understand science before COVID did not sponsor uh, cloth masks as a way to stunt uh, aerosol particles. They just didn't. Well, you alluded to, and I think this is one of the, a great article, and I'm going to draw everybody's attention to it as well. It's what got my attention to follow you, Michael, and that is how the media fueled the lockdowns. It's an article that was published in the Brownstone Institute back in June 19th, 20th, something like that. And I encourage many people to get to it because it's a very lengthy article, but it's kind of talking about what you're doing. But now here comes Ian and his little Substack blog post. And it, this one got me thinking here, and it's today's Substack. It's, uh, you can reach Ian out or follow him out on Substack. I think it's called Unmasked by Ian Miller. Um, believe it or not, there's another guy out there on Substack with Ian Miller, but he's a musician. Do you know that? I, I did not know that, actually. Yeah, he's a, he's a cello player and uh, from New York. So, But anyway, um, the article is the predicted return to mass mandates is underway. Okay. What do we have going on? Uh, Southern California. We're seeing it in all places in Georgia. Uh, um, Lincoln, Nebraska. What's going on? I can't understand this. Yeah, that one was for city officials, but I think it kind of speaks to, again, how pervasive this mindset can be, even in areas that you would not expect it to come from. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I again, I, this is a, a concern that I've repeatedly expressed. And I know many others have repeatedly expressed that um, as soon as you kind of open that Pandora's box of saying, like Michael says, ignoring all the pre-BC COVID studies, uh, once you open that box and say masks now stop respiratory viruses, there will always be an excuse to bring them back. You know, even after you know COVID stops being the dominant virus in circulation, if you know, if that ever happens or whenever that happens. And we can return to flu transmission. Well, you know, if we have bad flu seasons, now we think masks stop the flu. So, it, you know, there's always going to be this this mindset now among people that like to claim they, you know, quote, follow the science um, that masking can stop this tra- viral transmission or slow the spread or whatever. And and so you're always going to have these areas, certain areas where all it takes is one local county health authority official or one school board member or a, a city official or a mayor or a government, you know, whatever it might be uh, that really does believe in this stuff that they're going to have a reason to, to impose another mask mandate or do it in schools. Um, I mean, literally the president of the San Diego unified school district basically was like, if kids don't want to wear a mask, they shouldn't come to school. Don't come to school. Yeah. And I mean, that's just that the attitude can't be tolerated or accepted going forward. We've, we've seen what a disaster school closures have been. Virtual schooling has been, um, and, you know, we've also seen how useful school masking has been. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a concern. And I think we've, we're seeing 
right now. And this is, again, this is just summer. So, mm-hmm. you know, God knows how much worse it's going to get in the fall and the winter. Um, Ian, if I could ask a question, what is the general mood out there with this next round of mask mandates happening in California? Like with your peers, uh, people that agree with you politically, disagree politically, um, what is just the general overall mood? I would say that for the majority of, of people kind of outside of my personal you know, political bubble, um, most people are pretty, pretty done with it. And especially in San Diego, you can almost nobody here is wearing a mask in Los Angeles. It's definitely a higher percentage, but as I, I thought people were done with this last year too. And as soon as general mask mandates came back in California, everybody went right back to wearing them. I mean, it's one of my favorite examples uh, that I've referenced. I referenced it in the Substack post today and um, in many other places that Los Angeles County Public Health went and measured compliance. This is last December. It's hard to believe because it feels like it's all just over, but this was just, you know, seven, eight months ago. Um, they went around and measured 95 plus percent of people were wearing masks at over 1500 businesses. Of course, cases then skyrocketed and broke records. But I think that goes to show you that as soon as the rules come back, people just generally start complying again. I think most people don't want to make waves. They don't want to get in trouble. So even if they don't personally, they th- you know, they think it's, it's past time, it should be over and done with. As soon as there's a sign that goes up that says masks are required in the stores, they go right back to wearing them. So I, I think, I do think parents are, are more fed up with it for their kids. But as far as, you know, Los Angeles bringing them back in a couple of weeks, I think there's not going to be a lot of non-compliance. I think most people will just go right back to wearing them. And, and what do you do? I mean, honestly, like, you know, you're, you could be denied service, but you have to go to school. You have to go into, you know, certain buildings and certain functions. If there's a, um, a, a local ordinance or a state ordinance to do that, what do you do? I mean, honestly, I mean, you can, with some kind of peaceful protest, I mean, you can, you know, I mean, the enforcement, just like on air, airlines might vary, but um, in terms of conformity, I, I, you know, I, I don't think your average citizen has a lot of choice. I mean, you're kind of at the mercy of whatever the laws or, or the local rules are. I've walked out of some stores. <laughs> but Well, you can do that. But I mean, there's some places you just can't, you can't do that, right? I mean, you have to go some places. And if they've got a mask mandate, flying would be an example. If you have to fly and you have to conform, you know, what do you do? Um, yep. So, you know, you can't blame the people that aren't protesting or that aren't going, you know, you know doing some kind of revolution around this. Um, most people aren't wired that way. And, and this isn't the most extreme thing, uh, you know, compared to the lockdowns that we had a little over two years ago. So uh, it's just unfortunate that we aren't actually following the science, right? Ian, with your TM at, at the end of it, your trademark at the end of it. Well, exactly. Yeah, the real science. Um, is there a difference between um, a mass mandate? Are you seeing uh, like for kids in schools, and not for adults and going to the grocery store. But like here in Minnesota last year, uh, uh, Ben, didn't we have uh, kind of a ridiculous where the kids were required to wear masks and yet we'd go to the grocery store, didn't have that. We, if we wanted to go, you know, even to a movie theater, we didn't have to have that. But why yeah. were they doing kids? I mean, are they just saying, oh, they want to protect grandma? Because they weren't vaccinated. So if they didn't have the eligibility to be vaccinated, then that was the loophole to keep kids masked when adults didn't have to be. What they didn't call out, I mean, a lot of people in the media did, Ian did, I did, a lot of people did at this point. But a vaxxed uh, adult is still at far greater risk to co- to a serious COVID uh, incidence than an unvaxxed healthy person under 30. It's The data is not even close. 
But that's what they did. If you couldn't be vaccinated or be eligible to be vaccinated, then that that group was blanketed to have uh, continuing mask mandates. I mean, can you even imagine you've got high school kids that could have been eligible, but middle schoolers, elementary, toddlers, and day, daycare, childcare, they all had to be masked up. High school, college kids, you know, it might be optional. Um, it, it was an it's it was an insane policy. The the um, drive to have our very very young people uh, vaccinated with a first generation vaccination against a virus that's evolved at least four times now. Um, the math just isn't adding up. Well, okay. Now let's let's uh, Ian. I don't want to pick get into too much detail here, but um, I'm looking at some of these charts. I open up one a book once and I see Chechnya versus Sweden. I'm going, how the heck did you do that? But That's I get the yeah, but I think what it is, it's the common denominator is Sweden. <clears throat> what did you find in Sweden? Because you compare a lot of countries to Sweden. What did you find yeah. in Sweden that was so that uh, 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 interesting that caused you to okay, let's chart them against the rest of the countries? What was going on? Right, right. Well, I, you know, they were such an important example because they were one of the few places that never had a mask mandate anywhere. I mean, you know, there was no general mask mandate. They had very low levels of compliance among people wearing masks because the, the health agency kind of correctly said, you know, look, we don't think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of evidence to support using masks in the general population. So they kind of became this like unwitting control group, and by by virtue of just following what everything said to do pre-COVID, just by following the playbook. Um, so, you know, I, I compared them to the Czech Republic that, that when you're mentioning, I thought it was very important because Czech Republic was held up early on by multiple places as this kind of example of what to do, that their mask mandate was directly responsible for them having a good outcome in, in 2020. And yet, when you look just a couple months later down the road, Sweden, which everybody had claimed was uh, going to be a disaster area because mm -hmm. of, of not having a mandate, they were doing significantly better than the Czech Republic. And uh, I think at some point in early 2021, Czech Republic had the highest COVID death rate in the world after this article was published by USA Today saying that the masks no. in Czech Republic were a life-saving lesson. Not so, just that, Ian. Hold on. The USA Today yeah. article, just to go further, it shamed Americans, right? This was an American writer living in Czechia. And I think the article came out in August of 2020. He's shaming America saying if only America could comply like Czechia, Czechia is the gold standard. And it was it was a slam to America, to the United States on mm -hmm. our policies and the public's adherence. And Czechia ended up, just like Ian said, number one. And I think they're still top five in deaths per million on COVID. Um, go ahead. I, I wanted to throw that out. That US, it's funny you mentioned yeah. that, right? You and I've never talked about that. That USA Today, Today article was infuriating. Um, and I don't know if there's been a uh, 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 a correction by that writer or any kind of an acknowledgement, but no, probably not. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Well, and and that's the Czech Republic uh, was mentioned. You know, I think it was uh, Eric Feigelding who's been promoted on Twitter as like a supposed expert was saying that you know that was the, an example of a place that they just basically ended the uh, epidemic from masking in a matter of months, and it's just it's like. Every time that these experts try to try to credit masks in a certain country, the results inevitably flip. And, and Sweden, that never had masking, never had widespread masking, 
you know, they, their numbers just kept dropping relatively relative to the rest of Europe to the point where they had one of the lowest excess mortality rates in all of Europe. And their, their uh, COVID-specific mortality, even though they count everything, you know, any de- death with the positive test, just like we do here, uh, is right in the middle of the pack as far as Europe goes. So it, it, it just, there, every single prediction that was made that Sweden would be a disaster, the Czech Republic was this great success, has been, is now proven the exact opposite. But like you say, Michael, they never go back and update the story or issue a correction saying, you know, this didn't wind up bearing out over the course of uh, the next two years. Ian, did you find, Ian, did you find one community, whether it's, um, you know, a, a part of a state, a state or a country that had a mask mandate and then had kind of a flatline or sustained uh, suppression of cases and hospitalizations of COVID? Did you see that anywhere? Not once. No, I'm not over a long enough time period. I mean, there were, again, there's countless examples of places like Taiwan and Hong Kong and, you know, Australia, New Zealand that were so oh, everybody wore masks. That's why it was low or Israel. But eventually it, eventually they, they got it. Eventually yeah. they did so, get it. Yep. Not one place. I mean, you're, you're closer I guess, to I guess China They're, and their numbers are a hundred percent believable. Well, we, don't right? really know what the, <laughs> we don't really know what the data is out of China, but, uh, but yeah. you know, you're closer to this than anybody, but from where I've looked at it too, not one place in the world has had a complete two-year sustained suppression of COVID associated with a mandate. Eventually, it catches up. It might catch up soon and you get through it and then you're kind of done. Or it might get you, you know, 14 months after, you know, the first thing launched in, in uh, early 2020. But no, no place has been immune to it, even with mandates. And when it comes, it comes in like a, you know, like a hurricane and it runs for, you know, a six-week course and then it, and then it just leaves. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's just how, what we've seen everywhere. Well, uh, yep. have you guys read Alex Berenson's article today talking about Australia? Yes. And it was kind of remarkable as Australia is now going into their winter, they're in their winter season and they were kind of like the poster boy for lockdowns, what 95% vaccination rates or something like this. And they had the police were in there you know, rounding up all the unvaccinated, making sure that they're segregated. And they thought they had COVID licked. And now they're, you know, now it's all. So it's all for your listeners, for your listener, uh, Australia was practically under something like martial law. You can go back and find a lot of the news articles and a lot of the the news clips from Australia media um, on YouTube. They're probably still there. They were under uh, martial law where you couldn't leave. It was almost like what we saw in, uh, uh, I think it was in Shanghai uh, about, I don't know, what, two or three months ago when they locked down so strict that people couldn't leave and they'd be arrested if they did. And they were getting their doors locked down. Um, you know, you couldn't leave. And what we ended up seeing with a super high vaccination rate in uh, Australia is eventually the cases caught up. They ended up reaching by far their highest uh, death hospitalization and death numbers long after, uh, you know, after their 95% vaccination rate, by the way, their numbers are still kind of low, but the one thing, if you look at the correlating data of high deaths per million in the United States and worldwide, it's so highly tied to uh, obesity. And so when you look at countries, like people will talk about Japan, I just read an article about if only we could be like Japan, I read this in the last couple of days, Ian, you might've seen that piece too. 
And what I'm thinking about is, you know, Japan's got a 4% obesity rate. Japan never got hit with it, nor has any country that had a, an under 10% obesity rate. They didn't get hammered with excess deaths or high COVID deaths, but the countries largely Western that had high obesity rates, they're the ones that got it. They got mm -hmm. it sooner, they got it later, but they all got it. Well, I was just, uh, just reading this article from Alex and, and it just, it just dawned on me. I knew that Australia was, you know, was buttoned down. I didn't know it was that almost martial law. It I, was. Um, and then I heard, you know, Alex was talking about they had license plate readers and police were going around and reading license plates and determining if they were too far away from their home. They had checkpoints on expressways. I don't know if you ever saw that. They Australia had checkpoints on expressways. And if you were driving in an area that wasn't like between your house and a necessary place to go, you were either turned around or arrested. I'm, it was it was wild to see this on the news. And crazy. I'll tell you one thing else about Australia that was interesting. Ian knows this too. Ian and I, I know because we've talked, he and I both got Ian's book. I think you hit the bestsellers list in Australia, correct? Ian? Yeah. Uh, very, yeah. Briefly, it was in the top 50 or so books on Amazon Australia. Yeah. But that's a US book in Australia. So you hit the bestsellers list. I personally have gotten a number of letters from uh, citizens of Australia that have reached out to me just because they got the book and they were um, so interested in the work that we did because there wasn't a lot of that work that was created. I can only imagine, and you probably got outreaches from people that live in Australia too. These people were desperate to get quality information and it wasn't coming out of Australia. They had to get it out of America from, honestly, from guys like us. Was Australia the, the country that said absolutely zero cases will be, was that, was that what they were going for? Or was that New Zealand maybe? I don't know. Well, they, they were both locked down very hard. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, they always, what we term it as is a zero COVID strategy, right? You, you, you basically are willing to sacrifice almost everything to, to achieve zero COVID. And why? Because the media, the scorecard is COVID. The scorecard during the lockdowns really wasn't, well, what's happening with uh, deaths of despair or children's education uh, and employment? and um, you know, personal relationships and psychology, mm -hmm. things like that. The scorecard was only COVID. And that's why governors and all these leaders around the world had really carte blanche to go as hard as they wanted. They could do that because they had media cover and not only media cover, media really driving it. Okay. And they, they yeah. kept, uh, um, they were saying COVID cases versus COVID deaths. So it was, it was always COVID cases and it's like, those cases are probably not that serious. So that's uh, that's one thing I noticed too that was very frustrating through all of this. Okay, I got a curveball for both of you. Okay. Minnesota's known for tracking sewer wastewater mm -hmm. and determining COVID virus particles or whatever. What the heck is that all about? Did we, <laughs> anybody know? Any, I can't understand it, what that, is there some correlation or I don't know. It was, it was supposed to be kind of a leading indicator where if you saw those levels rise that you would expect that transmission in the community would start to rise. Um, I think there is, I, I haven't looked, I'll admit I haven't looked too closely into it, but I think there was something to it, but it's not nearly as predictive as they kind of were hoping it would be or, or acting like it was, but Michael may have a, a better answer on that one even. 
Well, I know they did it in a few places. They did it in Boston. They did it down in Florida. They, they maybe other places I'm, I'm not top of mind familiar. Uh, and the reasons you said, Ian, is, is that's why they've been, they've, they've done that as an extra test. I mean, you know, what really matters, I mean, the number that really matters is, um, you know, the case number is a very fluid number because it's, mm-hmm. it, 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 it really is a product of testing. It's directionally informative, no question about it. Um, but the hospitalization number is the one that's really important. And I'd say one of the real sins of this um, throughout the entire thing is that we've never tracked as a, um, as a full state. Uh, they did this for a while in Iowa, and they did it like in Dade County, Florida. But in general, it's been loose. They've never really separated out hospitalizations um, due to COVID or coincidentally testing positive with COVID. And that's a super important distinction. What we found out recently, God, Ian, where was that? I think it was in California where they came out and found that some guy was hyping this up, some ER doc, and then they kind of audited it. And they found out that only 10% of all the hospitalizations were actually in there for COVID. And like virtually nobody was in the ICU. Was that in California? Yeah, that was actually Los Angeles. It was LA USC hospital system. Um, which is one of the biggest ones. And it, really? you're exactly right. It was 10% of people that were in the hospital. Yeah, only 10% at this point that were there, you know, that had tested positive for COVID, but were, you know, 90% only had just happened to test positive. 10% were there to be treated for COVID. Um, I mean, of course, the hospital system, that's very kind of got noticed, put out this statement saying, oh, you know, COVID is still dangerous. Everybody should take precautions. Because they just can't accept, uh, you know, the, the the kind of narrative being challenged. And But that's, exactly right we should have been doing this nationally from the from the very beginning um you know covid can can affect hospitals for more than people that are there that are being treated for it but at the same time you know that was the supposed justification for a lot of these restrictions was that we have to protect the hospitals so if the hospitals are are that you know only 30 40 percent or whatever the number would be 10 percent 20 percent are there to be treated actually for covid then that should inform a lot of your policy decisions but we never got access to a lot of great information on it nationally. So you know, kind of like, like we've been talking about, they give them cover to continue all these policies for an indefinite amount of time. Well, I remember Dr. Scott Jensen, when she was a December of 2020, he came out and did a couple of videos on YouTube talking about death certificates, COVID, whatever, and doing the auditing. And then he made mention that, you know, hospitals are, profiting um depending on the cases and and the use of ventilators and all this and then that's where he ended up getting his second third and possibly fourth complaint by the medical medical boards here in minnesota and he beat them all back but um these doctors I think it was even earlier than that yeah i think it was even earlier laura ingram interviewed him and he kind of dissected what was going on there uh and that was a that was, I thought, one of the pivotal interviews, a breakthrough interview of information for us. And it's it just, and today, you know, he's, he's still got one complaint filed against him, and that's the board wanting to know all the number of prescriptions he wrote for ivermectin. I think that's, yeah, it's, it, it's really infuriating. I think it, a lot, you can just see how quickly the establishment groups in, in medicine and in media kind of coalesced around protecting whatever the you know prescribed policy interventions were at a given moment. And anybody contradicting those 
was just going to be vilified and, and harassed. I mean, we saw it with Scott Atlas as soon as he came in and tried to do really, I mean, common sense stuff. Like you should get tested if you have symptoms and if you feel sick, that's when you should get tested. It's, of course, that makes perfect sense. But they, they vilified him in the press and the media. You know, he wanted to kill grandma's herd immunity strategy where everybody's going to get infected. And what he kept advocating for was saying, you know, we have to try to protect the vulnerable while letting the rest of society go back to normal because we have all these these hugely uh, negative unintended consequences as a result of these policies, which has been proven 100% correct over time. Mm-hmm. We, we're now living through that those repercussions. But, you know, again, because he was critiquing the kind of establishment Fauci wing of, uh, of politics and, and the medical groups, uh, they, they hated him. And so anybody that has, that has done that, I'm not, it's, it's terrible, but it's unsurprising that, that he's been getting so many complaints like that. Yeah. Okay. Let's put on our, we're going to, uh, we're going to forecast for the next year here. Got the little globe ball here and we're going to kind of tell, you know, kind of say, this is what we think is going to happen. Non-pharmaceutical interventions. What's going to happen over the next year? Where do you think we're going to be? Michael? Can you go Michael, first? Michael, oh, oh, yeah. I'll go for it. <laughs> I'll go, I'll go okay. okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, I, you chime in and give me your opinion. You're as close to this as me. I do think we're going to see mask mandates sprinkled around different schools, uh, school districts uh, in different parts of the country throughout the next school year in the wintertime, fall to winter. I, I think we'll see some, some of that. I don't think we'll see any specific lockdown things. I don't think we'll see um, vax mandates. I think that that's all receding uh, rather than going to kind of go back. Um, I don't think we'll see any closed businesses. I think the most that we'll see is going to be return of mask mandates um, in some schools and perhaps even in some communities indoors. That's what I think. What do you think? I generally agree with that. I'm a bit more pessimistic as a, of a person. So I might, my take might be a little bit even more negative. I do think in general, you know, you're not going to see, you, I doubt that we might, I don't think we'll see any statewide mask mandates. I think you're right about it sprinkling through communities where it's going to be very down to the county levels about, you know, how, how severe and how uninformed is your local health official. Um, one thing that kind of concerns me is international internationally and, you know, it, obviously we're, we're all here in the United States, but there are a lot of people who have traveled to Europe for business or and, and people like to just go there for fun as well. And obviously Asia is the same way. Um, you know, when does this ever end in places like South Korea or Singapore or wherever that still have mask mandates or still are kind of imposing culturally these, these mask restrictions? And same thing with, you know, places like Germany, where they've already kind of announced we're going back to mask mandates this fall. Um, Again, I, I don't think that having rolling mandates can be an acceptable solution, but I think that that is kind of where we're headed in certain parts of the world. Um, I don't know how you fix that other than just continuing to put pressure on them and, and showing that places like Germany have already failed to control COVID with masking. Um, my hope is that I think it, it, you know, the fact that there are any schools at all that are going back to this is inexcusable. And that's the first thing to me that the most important thing is banning school mask made incident in all 50 countries, all 50 states across the country. Now, obviously never going to happen, but that to me is, is almost priority number one of ensuring that kids are able to go to school normally and ensure that they can do that forever. Um, but yeah, I really do fear that in places like LA and, and maybe the Bay area, uh, New York, that you're going to have rolling mandates uh, down the road and especially in schools for some reason. 
What about colleges? I had um, a, a month ago, I was uh, Lucia Sinatra with no um, college mandates, she, her group, and she was on, they're concerned about the, the vaccine mandates in universities, um, more or less. That's their number one priority to stop that. But they believe colleges are going to go back to it. And it's going to start August 1. They're going to start announcing more colleges doing vaccine mandates. And it just it's just insane um, what this is. Um, yeah. I don't understand. Well, I do understand why they're doing it. It's not logical. It's not based on science. But um, so no mandates. Or are you going to see rolling face mandates? Are we going to, is this going to be the normal way of life? the next several years or is there an end do you think there's an end to this uh, i think well i mean go ahead. i'm sorry michael i was gonna say you should you, uh, you have a son that's around that age right so this is kind of affecting you personally i'm sure mm -hmm. i do he's 24 well he graduated from college so we're finally he's a, he's now working out of home but uh, yeah, he had to deal with that crap there in the last two years of his school. Yeah, and it was we had to dodge it left and, and right. And Michael, you, you too, as well, right? Yeah, I mean, my son started law school a, a year ago, and mm -hmm. they had, um, uh, you know, kind of an interesting context, right? When COVID hit, my mom, who's now ninety in Detroit, and Detroit got hit early. Um, we've kept her under wraps, you know, for really. Some, even now, like meaning, you know, not wanting her to circulate or, or get to, to uh, mm -hmm. um, get too exposed, uh, because I think that's prudent. My son, who's, who was, uh, you know, in a big 12 school and he was a D1 athlete, um, when he got COVID, uh, when he was a, in his uh, senior year of college uh, in undergrad, I was so concerned that all we did was exchange two text messages about it. But he had a vax mandate at his, at his law school a year ago. And because he'd recovered from COVID, I was very resistant to him getting it. I, um, but he was, he was kind of not able to do normal things because he wasn't vaxxed. I finally uh, sort of green-lighted him getting a J&J &J vax. But I can tell you, I pulled an all-nighter his first night with him. So where I knew the proportional risk to a super fit 22-year-old, um, to COVID was really no statistical risk, whereas it might've been measurable after the vaccine. That doesn't make me an anti-vaxxer, I got vaxxed. But um, uh, but knowing that thing, I pulled an all-nighter. So the idea is, is um, that, you know, mandating, ma uh, mandating uh, uh, vaccinations for these healthy college kids, first off, most of them probably gotten it. Almost every kid I know has, um, has, has gotten it that's in school. So it's probably a moot point if the mandates come back. It also feels like the mandates are really receding again. It seems like um, every week or so I read about, uh, you know, quietly a quiet article, nothing in a big headline about a um, mandate that's being pulled back. I mean, they're losing these, these um, cases in court. And, uh, and it kind of, I think everybody kind of knows that they're not preventing transmission at all. They might be preventing a serious condition for maybe three months. That could be, but you know, the sin of the whole thing is, and Ian knows this well too, because we've, we've, he and I've talked so much about the um, mask studies that the CDC has put out, but the CDC 
hasn't commissioned a single um, randomized clinical trial on uh, vaccinations, on face masks in schools. They've done sort of after action review type of studies. And, you know, I actually got illuminated to this early because I was, I called Ian, he was walking me through a couple different ones that happened. One was a mask study that the CDC did in Kansas. And one was uh, a restaurant one they did in Southern California. And mm -hmm. because you were closer to it, Ian, um, you know, you're kind of explaining to me some of the nuts and bolts and they were, they were really jimmied up. I don't know how else to say it. They were, they were, um, the data was sort of manipulated the timeframes, um, you know, kind of doing a little bit of apples and oranges type of comparisons. And it's so disappointing. The only randomized clinical trials on masks that have been done in the world, I think were Bangladesh and Denmark. Is that correct? Yeah. Those two, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, with all the resources that we have, why hasn't America done these clinical trials? Uh, you know, we get this great sandbox to play in uh, and, and to do quality things so we can learn from this for the future. There will be something in the future. Uh, and we just haven't taken advantage of these opportunities to do really hardcore data analysis, except for honestly, people like us. Well, yeah, uh, I was going to say real quick on, on, the, on the colleges. I do, I do have some concern. I think one of the things is that, uh, you know, they've now done move past even just getting the vaccine mandates and moved into booster mandates. In a lot of these places, a lot of oh, they have, uh, employers right. have as well. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we're already, they're already rolling out four shots. The CDC is pushing and the Biden administration is pushing to get four shots for every adult. And, and obviously, and they've already kind of come out and said that we expect this to be a yearly thing at the very least. Uh, and now there might be variant specific type vaccines. So I, I think it is really concerning that down the road, we may see, and it, may, it probably is not going to be all colleges or universities, but there's probably going to be some that just say, as long as they are rolling out new shots every year, we're mandating them every year. It's a condition of, of coming here. Um, and I that's think that that's, that's indefensible. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, last year, one of the schools, one of the major, a state university um, required flu shots. I want to say it was in Colorado, but I'm not positive. But you're right. That was a good call out. You're right. A lot of schools have mandated boosters. And because there was a lot of chatter in our group on, um, on you know, people asking for advice on how do we get out of, getting our kids boosted. I mean, getting healthy kids boosted. I mean, please show me the science. And if anybody can prove the science or wants to do an open debate, I will get them a Capitol Grill uh, dinner <laughs> card or, or just give them my house. Um, those are open debates that we should be having. Okay. Last question here. Dr. Bricks got a book out. I don't know. Um, I've yet to see it. I've, I've heard horror stories about it. Um, anybody want to comment on what she's done, the mess that she's caused? Yeah, well, from, go first. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. From what I've seen so far, and I have not read it yet, but I've, from, from what I've read from uh, people I, I respect and trust, um, it, it seems like she's really trying to, uh, I, I think she's really uh, illustrating that her mindset was what I think is correct. And I'm not willing to hear any other information that contradicts me. And she was willing to kind of subvert and contravene um, what was trying, you know, official white house policy or, or from other advisors, she would do anything she could to kind of undermine other advice coming into the Trump white house and coming out of the Trump white house. 
um, because she was 100% convinced that th- whatever she learned in March of 2020 was indisputably correct. And I don't think that that's how anybody should should uh, should act. That you know, you should be there should be some humility and willingness to learn and uh, grow. And she doesn't. And this is a common feature of her and Fauci as well that they don't seem to learn from any mistakes or even uh, admit that there were mistakes. It's just exclusively like I was 100% right, and anybody who contradicted me needed to be uh, you know removed from my path. Um, and I think over time, her her prescriptions and policy ideas have been proven to be wrong. And you know, it's it's really dangerous and disingenuous to pretend that you know it would have worked if everybody just listened to me harder which i think is a lot of what she's kind of implied michael yeah so one you know in my social circle uh and even in to some degree in a lot of the um you know kind of hardcore analysts that ian and i are connected to there's always been a lot of ire around dr fauci and for my money uh early on this is going back to uh, over two years ago, Burks was the one who was always kind of bothered me because while Fauci was on TV, uh, on cable news, you know, kind of pretty much every day and doing briefs, Burks was the one who was really engineering all these lockdown measures, going, traveling around and doing straight communications with local leaders. And, and so when Burks came out, I think it was in February of 2021 on the CNN interview with the panels. Uh, and she said, you know, if we'd have done harder lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. And if everybody to what Ian said, you know, would have listened, we would have saved, you know, maybe 200,000 lives. And she's never been pressed in one interview on, can you please show me the map and let's really explain that or explore it. That's one of the things uh, that's been a little troublesome. And, uh, and then further than that, she's, She's um, never really taken any ownership for, I'd say, the collateral damage on any of these lockdown measures, uh, nor has she actually shown any actual science to back it up. I mean, when she was testifying before the congressional panel last month, Jim Jordan had kind of pressed her a little bit and said, OK, when the CDC was saying, um, Rochelle Walensky was saying and President Biden, hey, we need to. Yeah, everybody needs to get vaccinated. You won't get sick and you won't be able to spread it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the data didn't support that. By the way, the data, like people like us that were following this early on and looking at trial data, we kind of knew that was going to be the case. So none of us were really surprised when this sort of this thing exploded in, in, um, in let's say, spring of 2021. Mm-hmm. And and what's, what's troublesome is that... Um, we just haven't seen any of that admission from from Dr. Burks on this, and and there just hasn't been any actual data or science to back up some of the things, the assertions she's made, and she just hasn't been pressed on it. And I think it's very very damaging the um, the work that was done, the lack of clinical trials, the lack of science that went into a lot of her decision making. Um, you know, you really see. I, you know, I, I thought this like when I was in college, I used to subscribe to Fortune magazine this back in the eighties. And uh, I used to look up to all these corporate leaders. And as you, uh, you know, kind of grow um, into, you know, getting closer to those levels uh, in, in these Fortune 500 companies and knowing Ian, he's been close to some super powerful people and in, in his um, sort of side job, let's say. Um, and you realize how human these people are and how human these decisions and these mistakes are and the lack of maybe science and analytics that goes into it. It's, it's very... 
I'm shocked that Burks, after all she did, the whole Thanksgiving thing saying, don't travel, don't do anything. And then she did exactly what she said, don't to do, don't do. And then she had to resign from her post. I'm, I'm shocked that um, she's been out the way that she has campaigning around her book. And um, the book's been entertaining, but you know, I'd love to see the math that backs it up a lot of her assertions. Has anybody heard from Scott Atlas about this? Has he spoken about Burks at all? recently well uh one thing that was great was if you happen to read read, uh, read scott's book mm-hmm. he had cornered um dr burks at one point and said hey what why do you think these mask mandates are so good like what's your data point and she goes the hair salon study and when i read that before i read his commentary on it when i read it i was like oh my god you've got to be kidding ian you no doubt would have read that too in the moment And it's the most unscientific study you could possibly imagine. Like even when I was reading it back in the moment, uh, I was thinking, well, you know, this is like, this is so incredibly weak. Uh, And he really, you know, he he labeled that the Burks Fauci lockdowns, but um, it's very clear from reading Burke's book and Fauci's book that they were at about as polar opposite ends of this thing in in their outlook and how they observed it and their analytics and what the recommendations would have been i mean i would argue that burks and burks and atlas are further apart than even fauci and atlas probably but no there's no love lost there (laughs) well i was just wondering i just haven't heard any any commentary from uh from atlas recently on on burks's book or anything and i've been looking for it but anyway well that's the end of the show and you know believe it or not we talk about unmasking or the book uh, Unmasked, and we're all serious, and we end up talking about hair salon study at the end. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyway, and that's anyway. what this is all about. I mean, when you want to talk about following the science and these huge historical policies that were made, mm-hmm. and it was based on a couple people that did or didn't get sick from a couple stylists that might've been wearing masks, cutting hair for 20 minutes. And that really set the stage for national policy. Wow. Too bad. We didn't have time to go into the ridiculous, um, uh, forecasting models that we used here in Minnesota. I think what was it? 250,000 people were going to die. Uh, was the forecasted model. Governor bought a building, converted into a refrigerated morgue. None of that. Never, you know, just... Wayne, have you crossed paths with Michael Osterholm? He won't run into me. I, I've, I've actually talked to him, but oh, he's okay. too, he, he's too busy now. Get this. He's too busy now. He just purchased a condo in downtown Minneapolis overlooking Minneapolis, uh, Mississippi river, $3.4 million condo. He's only, he can only afford only about three fourths of the way up or what? Two thirds of the way up. He couldn't afford the six and $7 million purchase price of the penthouse suites, but he, he spent 3.4 million on his own little condo that he's too busy for uh, decorating right now. And, but he uh, should, cause I don't think he left his house for two years. So he should have a nice house, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, this is a new condo that he bought back in when Ben, when was that April? I think oh, it was it was something like just outrageous, but yeah, you know, Osterholm and I have had battles back and forth, especially after he attacked when we 
mentioned that no one, uh, um, I mean, we mentioned a lot of people have died in Minnesota from the vaccine. And he said, absolutely no one has died from the vaccine. And okay. And then his buddy, Dr. Gregory Poland from Mayo Clinic, who's down there at, uh, in, at Mayo Clinic, um, he says, I personally guarantee no one's died from the vaccine. These are our two experts that our media goes to here in Minnesota. It is unbelievable the, the nonsense that these guys talk about. Um, and as you're right, Michael, uh, in your article, it's all media driven and they just, just suck it up and they then proclaim it as the gospel everywhere. And it's just, it's just infuriating. So, but uh, that's the reason why I wanted to get both of you guys on to the program to actually talk the truth and speak the truth to everybody. So I really appreciate your time tonight. Uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity. Well, you're welcome. Okay, listeners, you've been listening and watching the Right on Point podcast. It's a candid discussion of your civil liberties, issues, and your legal rights with your own government. We discuss what no one else will by digging deep into the vaccine injury compensation programs, the PrEP Act, legalities of the COVID pandemic, and what's happening in our global community. I want to thank our guests tonight. Ian Miller and Michael Beatrice, thank you very much for being here. We got to bring you guys back on. Michael, you're going to have to wear that sport coat. I promise you. Ian, we'll maybe get you on a couple more times. We'll get you a matching one too. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> thank you, Ben, for being here. Ben Smith with Backwoods Media, my editor and co-pilot tonight. And thank the many listeners and viewers of this program. Each week, I leave you with the following. It's keep learning, keep challenging yourself, and always always question authority. Have a good day, everyone. You have been listening to the Right on Point podcast with your host, Wayne Rohde.